Hello, welcome to this episode of Great Conversations. It's my privilege today to welcome into the Great Conversations studio, Dr. Curtis Bonk. Kurt is a professor in the School of Education here, along with holding several other titles and involved in many different activities. Kurt, thank you for agreeing to have a great conversation with us. Welcome to our studios today. Thank you, Angie, for having me. I'm holding them, but we'll put them aside for a moment. How's that? Okay. You do juggle a lot of balls here, so if at some point during the conversation you have to catch one or two, we will understand that. No problem. Thank you so much. You've been invited to sit on this hot seat with us because, Kurt, in following your career over the last several years, what I've come to know is that you have a keen insight uh, into much of what's going on today in higher education. You are no doubt one of the movers and shakers, so I'm excited to put this first question to you today. What might you say is one or are one or two of the greatest challenges facing higher education today and specifically challenges that might be standing in between higher education and the attainment of its larger goals of equity and, and, and serving, serving society? I have a fortunate kind of perspective in this because before I got into higher education, I was a board accountant and CPA, sitting in the business world in the cube farms of Milwaukee. And I was working in the high-tech industry. And the company made the most dense circuit boards in the world, but wouldn't change with the time. Wouldn't move from mainframe computers, IBM, and the things I did on a laptop, well, 40-pound laptop, uh, things I did on the weekend in Lotus 1, 2, 3, and Visicel, you know, back in the day, were yes. hidden away in desk drawers. People didn't believe anything off a personal computer back then. Yes. Uh, and, you know, I had to work on the weekends to do that. Again, if it wasn't a mainframe, they didn't believe it. That company went under when I went to grad school. They wouldn't change with the times. Right. But I also got an insight into how technology can help people ramp up their skills, if you will. And I started exploring this. I started looking at, in effect, that intersection between psychology, technology, education, and business. And it's in that intersection where interesting things are happening today. But it also causes me to reflect on higher education because if we don't change with the times, we'll be like automated systems was 30 so years ago and I'll see the same thing happening again. But I do see higher education changing through teaching and learning over the past couple of decades. I've been at this, this is my 30th year. I do see a lot of hope and a lot of changes. It's just the studio we're in here right now didn't exist a couple of years. This building didn't exist, in fact. Uh, and people are starting to embrace physical changes in their buildings in part because of the changes they see happening in virtual ones. Mm. And now we see the notion of communities springing up that our neighborhoods are springing that are face-to-face -face ones, removable chairs. You go up to IUPUI, and it's a lot of out, active learning classrooms there. Here, the Mosaic Project, alive and well with you know, thinking about how to structure the environments for active and engaging learning. So one dilemma that higher education uh, faculty, administrators, and supporters of higher education are struggling with is how to move us from the traditional didactic forms of instruction towards the more active learner-centered 
ones. That's one issue and dilemma. Uh, the second, um, I, I think that's important, it goes back to that roots at automated systems, and that's the non-traditional learner. I was a non-traditional learner who escaped those cube farms through correspondence and television courses. My life changed from them. It was probably not as good as a face-to-face -face class, but I took some of those as well to qualify for graduate school. I took uh, psychology courses that I never had as an undergraduate in accounting. I had to take some. I took some through television. I took them, some through correspondence. Uh, and I took some face-to-face -face at University of Wisconsin, Waukesha of all places. <laughs> and I qualified for grad school. And then the people I was doing correspondence courses with hired me to design some telecourses with them on critical thinking for teachers and other things. And so my life changed through this ramp, uh, ramping up in a non-traditional fashion. I also listened to books in my car and other things. Today we have massive open online courses, which I'm studying what I call MOOCs. We have a lot of derivatives of those and blended learning and fully online learning and other ways in which one learns and it's the combination thereof that is changing one's lives. So we still need face-to-face -face in many ways. We're doing it right now, but we're recording it for others that can right. later on come back and watch us at any point in time. So the second dilemma we're facing is how to deal with the people of some college, get them to finish uh, my friend Peter Smith has a book, America's Wasted Talent, and he has another, a newer book that's just come out related to the same issue of getting people to finish. So that's the second important issue is that this large population, uh, in fact, the, the non-traditional population become the traditional in the future. We were talking about 18-year-olds before <laughs> even starting here today. That might not be the population we serve in the near future. The third dilemma we have is, as a result of that second pool and even the first yes. pool, is the diversity of our learner base. Mm -hmm. And thinking about not just the traditional populations that we're serving, but the fact that you know, we have, in some classes, a mini United Nations happening. You know, I had last fall 53 people in the room, of which 15 were enrolled, 29 were visiting scholars from China, and 10 were Fulbright award-winning teachers in the room from 10 different countries, you know, probably 16 different countries in the room. This has become the norm, is that diversity of that learner pool, but adapting your instruction to their experiences, being culturally sensitive and aware, and embracing them, encouraging them to bring in their culture into your classroom so we can all learn from them. So those are three issues you know, that, that we're dealing with. Adapting to change is a big one. The non-traditional learner, mm -hmm. and then the diversity of, that, of, the non, of the learner base. Those three things, and, and active learning, engaging learning, is part of the solution. It's not the full solution, but it's part of the way in which universities are starting to um, address and deal with these changes. So that really leads to the second question today, and that is taking a look at these challenges mm -hmm. and asking the question, how can teaching in particular, yeah. what we do mm -hmm. in the classroom, perhaps present some unique pathways to manners in which we can rise up and meet these challenges. You mentioned a willingness to change from a more didactic form mm -hmm. of that pedagogy to more immersive learning, mm -hmm. active learning. Mm -hmm. 
might you share a little bit more of your vision about, again, how teaching in particular, what we do in the classroom every day, how that might rise up to meet these challenges you've articulated? Every moment of the day, anyone who's teaching in higher education should be reflecting on what they're doing, whether they're watching a film in a, in a movie studio somewhere, uh, listening to a book in their car like I do all, all the time, uh, talking to their colleagues, reading reports. Teaching today and learning today is pervasive. We're in the learning century, you know, and 50 years from now we may recognize it and call it that. We haven't called it that yet, but we are in such. And that makes the job of an instructor, a trainer, a consultant in the higher ed space exciting as well as challenging. And so, as I mentioned earlier, we have these technologies ramping up and hitting us in the face with open textbooks and you mentioned immersive environments and whether it's augmented or virtual reality kinds of learning, mobile learning, online blend and so forth. And so we have these things that are providing us with opportunities but at the same time providing us with uh, some tension, if you will. And it's become, I think, part of my persona, maybe part of my mission, I guess, to help people understand that they don't have to utilize all these things, that they don't have to change everything they're doing. You know, not everything you're doing needs to be changed or ramped up or altered, but you do need to have a framework to think about the possibilities mm -hmm. for embedding in, thoughtfully integrating mm -hmm. the new technologies that wrap around us. And so I've been able to work on a few different designs, a couple different models, a couple different frameworks, if you will, uh, to start to think about diverse learners. I have a simple one, read, reflect, display, and do. Nickname is R2-D2. I didn't design it. Actually, my colleague John from Wayne State told me, could you speak to my class about the R2-D2 model? And I said, I don't have an R2-D2 model. She says, yes, you do. Every one of your syllabi said, you have a reading activity, a reflection, you know, read, reflect, display, and do visualization and then hands on. So I do have an R2-D2 model. So we, we ended, up doing, ended up doing a book together on this called Empowering Online Learning. I did a follow-up to that on, on motivation, 10 principles of motivation that spell tech variety, from tone, encouragement, curiosity, variety, very important, autonomy. You know, we get variety, autonomy, interactivity, engagement, tension, and yielding products, mm -hmm. tech variety. And that book has 10 activities for each of those 10 or another 100 activities. The earlier one had 25, 25, 25, 25. Anyhow, the second one's free. And so I've created um, a, a couple frameworks and ways to think about integrating technology to be more active. But it's not just about technology. It's about face-to-face -face settings. It's, it's about what you can do in any kind of environment to get people interactive, collaborative, enriching, engaging dialogue about ideas, principles, theories, um, new announcements and news. Trying to get people to see that what's happening on CNN and the BBC and wherever you're in, around in the world, in Korea and in China and Japan, that news is going to impact us on an everyday basis in our teaching and learning lives. And much of it relates back to the theories that we try and talk about in educational psychology or instructional systems technology. Mm -hmm. So I'm fortunate to be in a world 
that today, my, if my mother is still alive, she'd be reading about, or my brothers and sisters read about today. This world of teaching and learning, enhanced by technology, is front page news. It's no longer hidden on the back page. It's, it's, it's hitting us. And so what universities and colleges and high schools and elementary schools need to start thinking about is how every place is a learning space. We are always in Ha we always have some aspect of learning coming at us on our mobile devices. Mm -hmm. We're communicating with others. Mm -hmm. We're reflecting on what they send to us. We're downloading new uh, announcements or articles, or in our case, uh, we might be downloading, you know, full PDF files or dissertations. <laughs> yes. you know, hopefully, you're not reading a full dissertation on your mobile device, so you need <laughs> glasses. But uh, you know, we have to have this primary, this first principle that everything is an aspect of learning. We're in the learning century. Once you see that first principle, that we're in, embedded in a, in a learning and teaching world, yes. then everything else falls from that. And mm -hmm. all the seven plus billion people of the world now become our students and they can become our teachers. Today, anyone, and my world is open book, or we talk about this, anyone can learn anything from anyone else at any time. You take that principle and you start thinking about how young kids in the Philippines are learning from explorers in the Antarctic, and that's happening. What we are doing here at Indiana can make an impact on everyone around the world. And if we embrace that notion, and you make your books open access, like I've done with the Tech Variety book. You can, anyone can download it at techvariety.com, T-E-C-Variety.com. I've had 100,000 downloads from one website alone, another 20,000 from another. Um, so, you know, you can impact the world with your decisions. That's so exciting. And what I love about that is that you've put your money where your mouth is, so to speak. That your work and the way in which you have made it highly accessible is a reflection of your pedagogical disposition of the making money. learning okay, open. Let's see. Okay, let's <laughs> I think I have a million dollars in here somewhere. There we go. And, and it's, it is There's where your million dollars <laughs> for you. you. Okay. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, too. Thank you. I appreciate I have some things that I can purchase with this. I love Don't use it. it at Walmart. <laughs> I understand. Well, well, with this million dollars, I'll ask the million dollar okay. question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How is that? Are we doing enough, Kurt, to prepare our, our educators at the university when they come to us from graduate programs wherein they've really been working to become content experts rather than perhaps pedagogical experts? Do you feel at the universities we're doing enough to prepare our young faculty to be these kind of 24-7 learners. Are we doing enough to communicate that message? Every space is a teaching space, every moment a potential teachable moment. And if we're not doing enough, what more could we be doing? Things have changed, as I mentioned earlier, since my first day walking in the door at West by God Virginia University in 1989. <laughs> I was at the University of Wisconsin prior to that. And Wisconsin's mission is to educate the entire uh, state to the far yes. reaches of the state. This is part of their mission, but in fact, the planet 
Charles Wedemeyer was there who helped create the Open U in the UK. Yes, yes. And I was fortunate um, to be influenced by him. I never met him. I should have. Um, but the Wisconsin Existence Teaching and Learning Conference is an annual event in August that everyone should go to. It's a wonderful place to be. And that's an, a sign of the opportunities in front of all of us. So Wisconsin put me on that mission, if you will. When we got to West Virginia, I was in charge of the Classroom of the Future design. We didn't have a million dollars, we had $100,000 to create a classroom in the future back in 1989. It took us three years to, to um, do a, go through a nominal group process to get to the point of, of right. the designs for it. Um, but teaching and learning was more didactic. I had B.F. Skinner's daughter in the office next to mine, in fact, you know, where uh, we're, you know, teaching and learning or interactive learning was clicking a keyboard, and that was interactivity. Right. Fast forward, you know, coming to IU in 1992, and you know, the first thing I got was this hundred tips on interactive and engaging learning, and, and there were a lot of people paying attention to how to deal with large section college classes, for instance, uh, active engaging environments, uh, and I had a team that started exploring active and engaging learning uh, with technologies, and we ended up writing a book called Electronic Collaborators as a team from Indiana. Since that time in '92, I see more and more attention being paid to this space all around the world. I'm going to, I, I, whether I'm going to Finland or Australia, or New Zealand, you know, Japan or Korea, wherever I am, you see new buildings for teaching and learning, uh, which you know, of course, weren't there previously, and so the, the attention is being paid there. Can we do more? Uh, of course, a couple of years ago, Penn State offered a class on teaching and learning online mm. and the principles thereof. They expected to get one section to fill with 30 students. Mm. Do you know how many they had? I bet hundreds. They had 12 or 13 sections <laughs> of 30 I in imagine. a class. yes, yes. And so if Penn well, State's yes. doing that, why aren't more of the Big Tens yes. doing something similar, including Indiana? Because uh, these graduate students today realize that half of their teaching load is going to be teaching online classes. And if they have a credential in that regard, a certificate or a micro-credential of some right. kind, right. they're going to be golden. They're more likely to be hired. Yes. So given that, why uh, or what you know, can places like IU do? That, that is one, idea, one thing that can be done is to create some kind of class. The problem at IU is in part responsibility-centered management, RCM models, where you keep the money, typically, that you bring in. And so there's not as much flexibility to take for SPIA students to come over to the School of Education and take a class on teaching and learning. Right. Um, as I said before, I had a class with 53 people in the room. Only 15 were enrolled. Almost every visiting scholar who was coming to the School of Ed last year were sitting in because the course on critical thinking, creative thinking, cooperative learning, motivation, and technology integration. Five modules I've been doing for 30 years. But I, you know, get the people in school vet, but it's hard. So one thing, we have to be more open and tear down those bridges between us. SPIA does a great job of training their AIs and TAs. Um, high, uh, what's public health ha has been pushing a lot of online and blended learning and teaching their, uh, in those environments. Business school, I've been over there several times. Um, with their Kelly Direct program and other things. We have things happening in pockets, but we'll, and that's probably true of most universities. It's not just IU. Well, what needs to happen is the bridges need to come down, like through FACET, um, they do start coming down, but they need to come down in more, um, I think, 
market, marketed ways mm -hmm. so that we move across those borders more seamlessly. So that's one thing that needs to be done, I would say. That, that embracement of the teaching and learning possibilities as a one campus, not, as, not just as individual units, uh, so that we can um, train our, not only pre-service teachers, but our graduate students and alumni. And alumni, that's a huge population today. You know, if we were to offer some kind of micro-credential on, you know, teaching and learning with uh, technology and without it, you know, for our alums, I think that would be golden. So those are some things. Great points. And again, you've anticipated my final question for you today. <laughs> I think you've got your crystal ball back there somewhere, and you've peeked in it a couple of times. But I'm going to ask you now to bring it out and take a full view. And if you would... Peeking into the future, what might you predict will either continue to be a great challenge for higher ed in achieving these goals of building the commonwealth, equity in education? What, what might you say might even be some new challenges mm -hmm. that the future might hold for colleges and universities? You know, looking ahead, one of the possibilities as well as challenges that we have is going back to that notion that you know we're in a teaching and learning environment at all times but we need better counseling mm -hmm. in that regard I think people who have a counseling skills as well as domain expertise and some understanding of how to utilize technology for teaching and learning will be golden I call those the super mentors and counselors of the world so that is something that we're all going to need. You and I will need better counseling for our own academic uh, aspirations because lifelong learning, and I've just finished a book uh, called The 100-Year Life, and my former student, Rovi Brannan, who's a vice provost at the University of Washington, had recommended this in the Chronicle of Higher Ed a month ago, so I picked it up and listened to it, and he, he doesn't, uh, the author talks about renewal of our education over our lifespans and retirement what we envision today is not what's really going to happen in the future and so part of the challenge we have is not just the training the educating of the 18 to 22 or 25 or 30 year olds it's what we're what's happening with 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 year olds when we did research on MIT OpenCourseWare, when we did research on these massive open online classes and interviewed people who were in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and even 70s on how they're using these open contents, mm -hmm. some are starting new companies. They're learning marketing skills. They're learning um, how to run their budgets. They might be getting retooled to get ready to come back to grad school. They might be um, getting a job promotion or hopeful to get one. They might be avoiding a doctoral program and deciding, I don't need, I need a master's. And I, say, I, I can train myself the rest of the way, thank you very much, and I can do it on, in online ways. What challenges universities face is, what are those stories of success that extend beyond our typical traditional learner base and how might we play a role in the success, their success stories? 
and how might they play a role in our success. And alums are part of that, but I think also the billions of people who didn't have access to education previously that will. And so when we think about universities losing um, student base because of declining birth rates in New Zealand, Japan, Korea, US, and other places, and much of Europe. Really, I think in many places, we're going to see an expanded clientele because of on, the other, on the other end of people who want to get access to education. Some of it might be a blended notion where they might come to campus for yeah. less time yes. than they had previously. Uh, but that's all something we have to start contemplating today. Um, we see the influx of Chinese students throughout our classes. Um, what's the next country? Is it India or Brazil? Or where is it that we're going to see that same influx or similar thing happening or maybe something different? So counseling is one thing. The embracement of people who traditionally didn't have access to education that are both within our country that are in the work world who want to change their job situation, or might it be losing their jobs due to yeah. automation and robotics, artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. and how do we address their self-efficacy and their you know, self-confidence to take a, on a new challenge and, and come back to school for something like that. So those are a couple parts of the vision of the future. We also, I could perceive myself walking into a classroom in less than 10 years and having every group, every team, having a robot partner who provides the data for the group, who provides some kind of informational assistance. We see it today. I have Google Home, and I'm asking Google Home all sorts of things. But you see it in other kinds of personal digital assistance today. Georgia Tech being a place that's mm -hmm. utilizing them so much that students don't realize it's an automated aid, and it's not a TA that's human. If the TA is 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 robotic, or you know, it's a it's a programmed uh, digital assistant. So that's a second trend that I see happening: is that the structures that we're in, the walls that we're in, will be embedded with the factual answers that we need. We'll also see visual IQ walls like what we have at the Cyber Infrastructure Building here at, at Bloomington and also in our School of Public Health and in our media school. We see these gigantic visual walls. Yes. But those gigantic visual walls will be in our grocery stores, they'll be in our airports, they'll be wrapped around us in our libraries and all sorts of places. As students, especially young kids, walking into a school, they'll be picking their teachers and their classmates for the day. Now, this is maybe 20 or 30 years off, but it's gonna ha that's going to happen. But the, but the visual component of our teaching and learning is exploding. I teach a five-hour class that it's recorded. 20 years ago, there's no one in the right mind would let me record that amount of, of a classroom and put that up on the Internet and so forth. Uh, but today, we're in an age of videopedia not just Wikipedia. Yes. And so we have to think about how to embrace video, even short two-minute snippets, as an anchor for instruction. And I've written on this. I've got a free article people can download on 20 ways to use video from a learner perspective and 20 from an instructor perspective. I just wrote a little piece this weekend as I was telling you about the History Maker project within my field and how to utilize interviews of history makers short little snippets to get students excited about the concepts and the theories and the principles you're going to embark on during class. Things happen in the news on CNN, the BBC, putting that up on in economics news and jobless rates or whatever it happens to be. 
and then coming back to video clips over and over. So video is, is another aspect of teaching and learning we have to think about. Finally, I'll talk, there's many other things happening, but well, let me end with uh, learning environments. I come from the field of educational psychology, and when I was trained, there were bickerings and debates and a lot of tensions, a lot of, you know, um, emphasis on whether my theory is better than your theory. You know, is the behavioral theory better than cognitive or constructivist theory or social constructivist or critical theory? You know, those debates in some ways are over. Everything works. We have to think about how to utilize the best of all or aspects of all, maybe not the best of all, but pieces of all, into creating learning environments. And all instructors today are learning environment engineers or designers or architects. We are architects. We are in fact, creating a symphony within our classrooms today with a plethora of resources wrapped around us. It's an exciting time to create a learning environment, and I'm working on a book called Education 2020 with 20 principles of instruction, the principle of flexibility and spontaneity, high expectations, relevance, and, and convenience, and so forth. And then the 20 roles of the instructor, all starting with the letter C, the teacher is a concierge, finding the the little roadmaps to send your students down and the pathways. The instructor is a curator, finding the best content and creating the golden nuggets for your students in the museums, the, the archival records. The instructor is a coach, pushing and helping and providing the video to reflect on you. Uh, the instructor is a cultivator of learning. You know, the instructor as a counselor I mentioned earlier, or a consultant. I mean, all these ways in which we as teachers uh, in higher education spaces or other spaces have these challenges but these exciting possibilities. And that learning environment is going to be in part a Starbucks kind of place, right? Uh, in part, it's going to be a collaborative uh, workstation area for teams to build. It's going to be a place for solitary reflection. It's a combination of spaces where in part it's social. In part, it's one-to-one -one counseling. In part, it's team-based. In, in part, it's individual. And spaces today, I was at the University of Adelaide. They gave students or put them on a committee for $45 million Australian. I'm not sure what that is in USD. <laughs> but to create a, a learning hub for their campus. And when I was there, I didn't want to leave. There are these learning hubs today that are comfortable with coaches and whatnot. So thinking about spaces for learning and that at IU, Stacey Maroney and others, Michael Maroney, your husband, are creating these spaces for learning uh, that are in, a, engaging, that are inviting. We want to create invitations to learning, not avoidance of learning. And I think if we all start thinking about teaching and learning from a learning environment perspective, the whole world will benefit. And I'm happy to listen to people and their stories of their creation of learning environment. Send me email. My email is <laughs> cjbonk at indiana.edu. So, Thank you, Angie, for inviting me in here. Um, download the Tech Variety book and get a free book. I think I'm the one who wants to extend the thanks for you joining us here in the Great Conversation studio. And on a very personal note, Kurt Bonk, your work inspires the work that I do every day in the classroom. A hearty thank you for devoting your life to the enhancement of teaching and learning. And thanks for this million bucks. The world is open. <laughs>